Welcome to Poetry Spotlight, presented by the Ohio Poetry Association. I am your host, Jeremy Jusek, and with us today is Pauletta Hansel. Pauletta Hansel's nine poetry collections include Heartbreak Tree, a poetic exploration of the intersection of gender and place in Appalachia, which is out in March 2022 from Madville Publishing, and Friend, Coal Town Photograph, and Palindrome, winner of the 2017 Weatherford Award for Best Appalachian Poetry, all from the Dos Madras Press. She is the 2022 Writer-in-Residence for the Public Library of Cincinnati in Hamilton County. Her writing has been featured in Oxford American, Rattle, Appalachian Journal, the Anthology of Appalachian Writers, American Life and Poetry, Verse Daily, and Poetry Daily, among many others. Pauletta was Cincinnati's first Poet Laureate from 2016 to 2018 and the past managing editor of Pine Mountain Sand and Gravel. For more, visit her website at paulettahansel.wordpress.com. And Pauletta, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thank you, Jeremy. I'm delighted to be here. All right. You want to start us off with the poem? Sure. I will read a poem from um, my upcoming collection called Home is the Place Where When You Have to Go There, You Only Think About How to Get Out. Busted up doll heads where the canned goods used to be, sun-steeped hill-buckled sidewalks, and everybody just looks tired. Nobody cares this is where your mother used to buy her meat. The houses you lived in plowed under, moles scuttled through plumbing cracked with black dirt and roots. Nobody cares about your old woman body grown on the bones of the girl who walked these streets. Everybody has their own worn bones. Everybody remembers you, sort of. The newspaper man calls you by your mother's name. You can't remember the name of who you sat next to in math class or whose back seat you crawled out of nights, the river fog so dense you came home hair and misplaced clothes all damp and smelling like mountain. Nobody cares you know this town by what is gone, stench of grease spilled from the closed pool hall, mailbox on the corner where the boys sprawled, pelvises jutted out to block your path. You pull up your car too close to the high curb somebody told you was made for hitching horses. Nobody had any horses. Amazing. That imagery is evocative. Do you do you see it while you're writing? Like, do you actually? I, actually, I do. It's I, I this and and with that particular poem too because it was written from a day that I went back to my my hometown of Jackson, Kentucky. And so even as I'm reading it, I'm, I'm seeing I'm seeing that day and feeling that heat and having having those memories. Um, so but yes, as I as I was writing, I was trying to um, to be as 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 specific and concrete about what um, what I had experienced as I could be. It shows, you know, it, it's and do you do you often turn to place as a you know as an inspiration i think i do it's i um i am um more and more as, as i get older i suppose uh writing about the places from which i've come and i think um you know it's it's maybe it's something about about memory or age but there's a way in which those those places are 
so real and specific to me, even more than perhaps when I was there, that there was sort of this, this background camera, you know, sort of taking the, take, taking the picture and, and saving it into, into memory, whereas I'm not really sure I paid that much attention to place, you know, and, and, to, and to, to, the, uh, to the world that I was, the physical world that I was living in when I was a girl who was, was living in that world. Okay. Where, where did you find poetry? Did you find it in that world or did you find it later? Did you reapply, did you, you know, apply back? No, I was, I started writing as, um, as a very young, a young girl. Um, actually, um, my, my first real memory of writing was as a, um, as a junior high student. And my, earliest influences really were not so much poetry as it was was the singer songwriters of the day um but poetry is is how it came out in in me um i i write other in other genres i mean primarily memoir um and and essay a little bit of flash nonfiction, flash fiction but really poetry is, is where I started and poetry is what I always come back to. Okay. Why poetry then? I think it is just who I am as, as a writer. It's just how I process and it's how I processed from a very, very young age. Um, I was, uh, I read you know, constantly as a child, as soon as I could could hold a hold a book and and read it myself, and and tended to read more fiction and and uh, biography, but poetry is how um, is how I expressed myself, and it really may have something to do with having grown up in the um, in the seventies and the the singer songwriter um, being so much of what I was listening to. Sure. And not being a musician, poetry is what I did with that, uh, with that inspiration. I'm, I'm, I'm amazed by songwriters because I, I feel like I, I wouldn't know when to repeat stuff. You know what I mean? I wouldn't know when a chorus goes somewhere and sounds good. No. Yeah. But as a poet, you do, right? Right. Yeah. As a yeah. poet, I feel totally comfortable. But yeah. once you add the element of music and... You know, the idea that people are listening and absorbing the music and not necessarily scrutinizing your word placement. Right. It, it, it feels, I feel I, it's intimate. It's an intimidating thing. Yeah. Yeah. But I think about it, I guess, in some ways as the music, as the music of the poem, you know, the music of the words, the repetition, uh, then becoming a, you know, a part of that, um, that music. Maybe it's easier without having to have a melody with it as well. <laughs> Just letting <laughs> letting the words be the be the melody itself. Yeah, I, I mean, I'd be okay with with singing a song if somebody else made the composed the music for me and applied it to my words. <laughs> like here, this would sound good. <laughs> <laughs> and that would be fun, wouldn't it? <laughs> it would be It'd be nice. Yeah. Have you have you ever read your poems to music before? Um. Not really. I was just trying to think as we were talking about that, whether or not anyone has ever uh, made made a, a song from my poems. I don't think they I don't think they have. And uh, I have not used musical 
backgrounds for my writing you know when I'm doing readings and I think it probably does have to do with just the sense that you know that the words themselves are the music okay and so to have a melody to be part of that in the background I think would feel distracting to me as a reader although you know hey any musicians out there who want to use any of, of my poems as, as a basis for a song of course that would be lovely but I would also recognize that they would need to recreate them you know that the, that the music would or that or that the poem would be the raw material that they would be working with because because a song has its own rules just as a as a poem you know creates its own rules sure sure now you've you've taught poetry for a long time. I mean, you're a teacher through and through. Uh, you've done workshops and classrooms and all sorts of stuff in different settings and venues and whatever, and what have you. Um, <clears throat> and you also worked with Wordplay, which is a literary and literacy organization for young writers. So I want to ask you, what, what inspires you to teach? And what are some effective methods for teaching poetry specifically? Mm -hmm. Well, I think I actually, I, I started my professional career as a Montessori teacher. So I first, my, <laughs> yeah, my first teaching was actually a preschool. And actually before that, my mom had a, had a, a daycare center in uh, Jackson, Kentucky, where I'm, where I'm from. And so I, you know, helped um, take care of the children there. But then once I went away to college. My first work study job was in a, a Montessori school, and eventually I kind of chose that as an, an initial career path. Um, so I think, you know, the sort of the, the, the idea of teaching, the idea of guiding, facilitating uh, people's education, whether it's, it's young people or, or peers or people, you know, older or more advanced in their writing even than I am, is, is um, has has been an impulse for you know for much of of my life but I think with poetry and with teaching creative writing um I teach to learn as much as anything that my first my first um real teaching of poetry I mean I've led creative writing workshops before and you know sort of facilitated classes but really um my, my first experience of trying to um, kind of break apart the learning in order to be able to put it back together and, and, and offer it back was while I was in school um, in a low-res uh, MFA program. And so teaching poetry wasn't part of that low-res MFA program, but it was it's, was something that I did in order to go deeper into my own learning and to reinforce what I was learning um, in, in that MFA program. And, and so, I, and, you know, I told, I told students, you know, <laughs> you're, you're, getting, you're getting the MFA along with me here, but I'm the only one who's <laughs> gonna get the degree because I'm charging you a heck of a lot less than, <laughs> than what I'm doing. But I'm gonna ask you guys a lot of questions. <laughs> <laughs> But it was, it was, it was sort of making sure that I, you know, that, that I really understood it, that I was able to, you know, to communicate it, not just through my poetry, but also through, um, you know, through and, and sort of organized method of, of, of education and, and in a, in a workshop setting. 
And still, it's, I mean, it, it still ends up being true for me that it's, I, uh, especially with my adult classes, which tend to draw a lot of the same poets um, over and over again. So I'm always having to, you know, kind of come up with, with new, new ideas and new approaches while at the same time bringing, you know, newer students along um, to, to where the, the rest of the class is. I go with what excites me. You know, things that I'm interested in, in, in learning and exploring is what I bring into my teaching. And it goes hand in hand for me. The teaching, teaching and writing is, um, they're kind of dual parts of my love of poetry. Yeah. Yeah, I found that like, because I've only taught I, I've I've taught technical writing, but I've never taught poetry in a, in an academic setting. And when I deal with classes, it's usually people that are newer to the craft. And I find mm-hmm. that one of the things that they struggle with often is the lack of narrative. That there's mm-hmm. no conclusion to what they're writing. That they're just capturing a feeling or an essence or a, mm-hmm. an image or whatever. Um, have you found that to be true or, or, or having been on both sides of the fence, you've taught and you've, you've learned at the MFA level, what, what obstacles are in teaching poetry? Well, I'm a narrative poet, so, (laughs) 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 but still it, it, it is still, it's a different kind of, obviously it's a different kind of narrative. There may be a beginning and middle and end to the story, but it's not, it's not, the same sort of wrapped up conclusion that you that you know that you get in a good mystery novel or in in a, in a fairy tale. Um, I think yeah, I, I think it it has to and it, you know and these are certainly things that I stro- have struggle with or have struggled with in my own writing. Um, you know what is the relationship between good prose and good poetry? What you do, what you need to do in prose in order to you know, set the scene, sort of the making transitions in poetry, you trust the reader, you need to learn to trust the reader and to trust your words to bring the reader to make those leaps with you, which is often done in image as opposed to in in explanation. But when you get right down to it, that's true in, I mean, it's probably not true in technical writing, but it's, or maybe it is, I don't know, but it, it's true in, in, or can be true in fiction and creative nonfiction as well, that it's, um, you know, over, over explaining is one of, one of the, uh, the critiques that I often will off, offer to people who've asked me to read their prose as well. Sure. Yeah. And, and it's, it's difficult because sometimes poetry, perhaps less than other forms, although I can't, I haven't studied other forms as extensively as I've studied poetry, but poetry seems like rules that it's, it's more difficult to apply universal rules of any kind, because sometimes excess imagery really works and sometimes it doesn't. And I'll run into times with people in in my workshop where they'll say well you said this last month and I was like I did but this is a different set of circumstances Mm -hmm. now you know what I mean (laughs) yeah yeah that's definitely true you know one of one of the things that you asked about um was you know sort of ways of of working with with younger people or really with people in general around writing and writing poetry and and one of the things that I find especially with 
with children, you know, children and teens, um, it's important to be a really good listener in order to figure out how they're figuring it out for themselves and then to reinforce that. So the first time, you know, with, with a group of, of young writers, for example, the first time I hear a metaphor, you know, it's like I'll just jump up and down with, with, with excitement uh, and say, look, look what you did. You know, <laughs> you made this by yourself. It's, this is, you know, this is one of the building blocks of poetry and you found it in your own writing because you had something to say and that metaphor was the way you wanted to say it. Because I think really it's, it's I mean, we all have those tools within us of image making, of meaning making through image, of, you know, of making music through our words without necessarily calling it poetry. And so one of the things that a teacher can do is just to point out that that's what, that's what we're doing. And, you know, kind of take, take away a little bit of the, the fear around, around getting it wrong by pointing out all the ways that, that new writers are already getting it right. Yeah, no, that's, that's a hundred percent true. I mean, you can, you know, not to be too crass, but you can describe a booger to anyone with enough description <laughs> that they'll say, please stop. Like that may not be a poem, but that is an image. <laughs> it is, it is an image. And now what do you want to do with that image? You know, <laughs> Where are you going with this booger? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> You've picked it out of the lineup. Now what are you going to do? <laughs> So you were also named the 2022 Writer in Residence for the Cincinnati and Hamilton County Public Library. So tell us about that role. What, what are your goals for the role? What, what does that mean? And, and what are you going to do with it? Well, it's um, I am I'm, I'm really honored by having been selected. And I just think it's so cool that our library, that the Cincinnati Public Library has a Writer in Residence because it's it's not really all that common you know, throughout the country. I mean, there, there are definitely some municipalities and counties that do, but, you know, as uncommon as a city poet laureate is, a writer in residence is even, even less common. And so to, you know, to be able to help to uh, promote this program within the Cincinnati Public Library is just really cool because libraries are, are and have been just a big part of of who I have been as as a as a reader, especially. And you can't be a writer without also being a reader. Um, I'm the I'm thinking the I shouldn't I shouldn't try to say I'm not the first. Let me just say that there that there are that there are many wonderful writers who have come uh, before me as writer in residence, and so the library has has got really a pretty good system down for what they would like for um, for their writers and residences to do, and and it includes things like a number of workshops. Um, office hours where people can, uh, you know, can, can come either now online, but hopefully soon in person with a, a little bit of their work or with some questions about writing and have some conversation around that with, with the writer and residents and, and whoever is also happens to show up with questions. Um, I'll be doing some podcasts 
not not nearly as well as you, but I'll try. I'm, I've been picking picking Jeremy's brain on 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 how to how to do it. I don't know about that. I'm setting a low baseline. <laughs> you, you'll vault right over. I promise. Nah. <laughs> Um, and then also uh, also blogging about about my experience. But I think you know a couple of things that I really want to be able to do is to um, connect more of Cincinnati's writers with the writer in residence program and with and with the library and just to to make sure that more that people I know know that this cool program is out there and that it'll serve as a resource for writers even after I'm no longer in, in the position. And so making that connection between uh, between Cincinnati's really lively uh, literary scene and the library's lively programs is one thing. And then the other is, is working with library patrons to be, you know, to be a real life writer, to, you know, kind of show the person behind uh, behind the books that they're that they're reading. Yeah. And and like my workshops through the library, and I meet so many people that are just interested in writing. They do, and they they there's a lot of people out there that are they're good writers, and mm-hmm. they just have this mentality. They're like, well, I'm not a writer because you know I don't have a bunch of books out and like you know whatever. But yeah. that there are some studs out there that are just waiting to be discovered and connected. I think absolutely, absolutely, and and so you know part of that too is is letting you know, those, those library patrons who may not be aware of how, what a supportive community there is, even outside the library through the various poetry and, and other groups in Cincinnati is, is, is something else um, that I think I'll be able to do. And it's, and really it, it's, you know, one of the things that the library staff has told me is that my passion for community building around writing is um, a big part of why I'm writer in residence, so I want to use that passion for for good purpose. Absolutely, and and what and that that recognition is so important because it empowers you going into the position. You know, yeah. um, what what have you learned? Do you think from being poet laureate that you can apply to this position? Because some of the duties are fundamentally the same, even mm-hmm. if you have you know different means of achieving it. Yeah, I mean, I think within the within a city poet laureate position, you know, the the audience is much broader in a sense, and the pro and and so there's there are you know various possibilities. Whereas with the library, one of the things that I'm really happy about is that you know the programs are all within um, the you know, 51, 52 libraries uh, within the library system. And so there's kind of a ready-made audience, you know, a group of people who are um, are already connected to the library or who could be. Uh, but I think, you know, I think in terms of, of the similarities, it has to do with um, with the passion for the work, for the community building, for uh, being able to offer programs that will appeal to a wide cross-section of people. So that, you know, that, so with the library, for example, I'm doing a memoir class that will be coming up at the end of January. I'll do a poetry workshop in, uh, in April. And then I'll also do a flash fiction workshop with teens because I've found in my work with teens that, that, uh, that, that 
world building through stories is something that you know that 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 teens often uh, teen writers often like to do. And then I'll end up with an intergenerational writing workshop where I'll be bringing uh, adults and and children together to all write and and to learn from each other. And so just kind of looking at at ways to do programs that meet people where they are and to serve serve specific needs of specific of specific audiences. Okay, that's really cool. That's awesome. And, and you had mentioned doing some of the intergenerational work because you you're really good at meeting the audiences where they are, like not just in terms of your ability to build a community, but in your writing too. And the the example I want to use is the collection Friends because you wrote this collection, and it was written as an epistolary or right. you know a series of letters about COVID, and one of the things I found so fascinating about this collection is it's almost like a Sentos exercise where you have these things that other people wrote to each other and, you know, shared, not intending it to be viewed as a literary work, but you commandeered it and displayed it as a, as a, as a literary work anyway. And one of the things that's so cool about this collection is it, you're, you're, you took snapshots because people spend so much time with poetry trying to get snapshots of these things, but you took snapshots of people in COVID. So how, you know, how did that collection turn into a collection? How did you decide that that is where you wanted to meet people and, and why? Well, the book Friend came about in a really very specific way, and it, it has to do with the, the conversation we've been having about teaching. I was teaching one of my regular classes um, from Draft to Craft Poetry class as part of my uh, community class for Thomas More University, and we had our first class on... I'm making up the dates here, but they're pretty close, you know, March 2nd, 2020. And we had our second class on March 9th, 2020. <laughs> and then, you know what, you know what happened, we were shut down. But some, you know, some wisdom far greater than mine led me to, um, to have made the decision already before I went into the class that what we would be doing in the class is to write epistolary poetry that we would look at some examples of letter poems, uh, particularly um, uh, the example of the series that was published in the New Yorker of a series of, of letters between uh, Ada Limon and uh, Natalie Diaz, and that we would partner up and spend you know, the, the semester or the eight weeks uh, writing letters, poem letters back and forth to each other. You know, we sort of looked at what sort of the intersection of, well, what's a poem, what's a letter, you know, where do they, where do they intersect? Where, the, where do they come apart? You know, how do the rules of one affect the rules of the other? So when we had to, to shut it down, and this was not before Zoom, because obviously Zoom was out there, but it was before I knew anything about Zoom and, you know, had had, had any thought of, of doing a class on Zoom, letters were how, these letter poems were how we wrote to each other. So most of these poems in Friend were written as an exchange, within my part of an exchange of, of poetry letters, actually with three different poets who were in, in my class. Um, I was 
being a little bit of an overachiever, maybe because I was so freaked out and had, had so much I wanted to be able to, to say about the experience of lockdown. And so what you're seeing is, is my part of the exchange, but I think you get a sense of who that other person was, you know, the real life person that I was exchanging with. Um, and each, um, you know, I'm aware of, you know, when I, when I look at the, when I read those poems back to myself, I still feel it as a conversation. You know, I still feel it as, as this, uh, this awareness of this intimate other whom, you know, I could not see, but whom I could share these, um, this experience with from afar. I didn't think about it as a collection. Um, until I was working during that time with uh, a wonderful uh, poet and mentor, Rebecca Gale Howell, who lives in, in Lexington and was sharing, you know, my poems also with her. And she said, you know, put this together, send it out as a chapbook. So she, she believed in the work as it's, you know, as, as a body of, of work, as a, as a book of poems before I saw that myself. That's really cool. And, and you had said, you know, you had, I want to touch on something you had said about the audience, because you're saying, you know, the letters have an audience. It's the person that they were being sent to. When you're writing a poem, you also have an audience. Is there, how, how does that overlap work when you're trying to edit these letters, which were meant for a specific person into an experience for everybody? Well, part of, part of it certainly was, um, based on the idea that these were epistolary poems. And, you know, so when we, when we wrote these poems, when we, we, when we set out to write them, uh, we and I really thought of them as poems as well as uh, intimate correspondence. Okay. So they were always both. You know, I think what, what, what made, uh, what I learned through writing these 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 letter poems was that there is you know there there is something about knowing that someone in specific is going to read them that creates an urgency and an intimacy that then I am trying to bring into the rest of my poetry. You know, so I think I think I learned. You know, I I grew as as we always do when we write one poem, we learn how to write another poem, uh, the next poem, right? That that's sort of part of what what writing teaches us is is um, is how to then to keep moving into into the deeper into our body of work. And for me, with the epistolary poetry, it was the intimacy and the urgency that I take with me into the rest of my poetry. Okay. Um, and then you also, you know, it's just to realize that that when other readers outside of the person that they were written to responded to them in a way that they spoke to, you know, a broader audience than just an audience of one, I think is a reminder that um, that that's part of what poetry does. I mean, that poetry is in a in a way it it it. Um, it, it, it encourages our, our eavesdropping, you know, that there's a way that we feel like we are looking inside to someone's uh, life, 
and of course that's what literature does that it gives it gives us gives us that view into into each other's lives and so it didn't necessarily matter that you know that the specific you was not the you of the reader uh the reader still got invited in because of uh, hopefully the joy of, of just being able to uh have that intimate relationship through poetry sure uh, that's that's an important one to have um let's talk about your your newest book heartbreak tree so that's that's coming out in mm -hmm. march that will be out in two months from the you know airing of this episode so yeah what, actually two months from today almost i think the march 18th is it's 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 supposed to be its release date so oh that's excellent <laughs> and we're talking on the 17th so yeah it's it's just it's almost here which is exciting because i've been waiting for it feels like i've been waiting for it for so long it was accepted um about 18 months ago i think so it's it's been a it's been a while waiting for it to come out sure so how, how has that gone you know what inspired the collection and and what came out of it so um heartbreak tree is um is it's a full-length collection unlike friend which is more of a chat book length and it is at least begins with um this looking back into my girlhood and adolescence in uh in eastern kentucky in appalachia and then it moves on from there i mean it really is sort of covers the span of 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 my life and is much about you know being a mother being or being a daughter being a stepmother being mothered um sort of all the interrelationships between between women and between generations um so you know it covers sort of a widespread and in, in a way but i had just finished when i started working on the poems that became heartbreak tree i had had just finished uh my book of poems coal town photograph which covered in some ways you know some some similar kind of material in, in the sense that it was looking back into um into growing up in appalachia but there was much more of a sense of not nostalgia exactly but of longing my mother had just died um you know there was this sort of the sense of 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 loss of place as well as loss of my place within the generation and family and so with heartbreak tree i decided that i wanted to write or or with the poems that became heartbreak tree i should say because i wasn't really thinking of it as a book at the time i decided that i wanted to write as starkly and as non-nostalgically as possible about adolescence about uh, about eastern kentucky about appalachia and so those poems um, have a little harder edge, maybe, than, uh, than some of my other poems of place. I was also working with, uh, with Rebecca Gale Howell, the, the mentor and friend and wonderful poet that I, that I mentioned around, the, around friend. And so she just encouraged me to keep going deeper and deeper into the story and so i did um i was also playing with as as you know with epistolary poetry with um 
with friend. And so it also includes epistolary poetry uh, to some degree, but the letters are to my 15 year old self. So there's a conversation there between the adult woman that I am and the girl that I was. Cool. Um, that's, that's interesting. So, so when you, because I struggled with this, I don't, I, this isn't, this isn't, a, this podcast isn't about me, but I struggled this with this when I was writing about my hometown because mm-hmm. my experiences were what they were. And, but my appreciation for the place that I grew up in was a very different thing. And when I went to write it, I had a difficult time reconciling the two. Mm -hmm. So my question to you is, how did you decide that you were going to be frank about it? And what did that mean in terms of honoring the place? Like, Mm -hmm. was that a a conscious effort in your mind? Well, I think... I think I've written enough about Appalachia and Eastern Kentucky that, you know, that, that anyone who knows my body of work knows that there is, uh, there is honoring, there is respect, there is reflection, there is, you know, all of, all of those things. And so, you know, it's a, a one poem is only one poem. You know, even a book of poems is only one book of poems. And there's just as a place has many, many different um, aspects to it, then, you know, then then it seems to me that we have permission as those who are writing about those places to explore the many aspects. As long as we do it, we do it honestly and, and you know, hopefully not self-servingly. Um, I was also it's the other thing actually that that happened during during this time was that I was invited to go back and to do a series of writing workshops in the county that I grew up in. And so I had the opportunity to write with young people who were still going to the high school that I went to, you know, and who were still living in the places that I lived in. And to do some writing uh, for that project, uh, which was a very different sort of writing, which was really much, much more about, um, you know, creating some blog posts and some newspaper articles that really highlighted the the strengths of of the place. And so I had an outlet as well, you know, for 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 that kind of writing. Um, you know, I think I would, as, as a young writer in my 20s, I stopped writing because, in part, because I was afraid of telling the truth. And when I began to write again in my 30s, I decided that if I was going to write, and I was going to write, then I had to be willing to to speak truth no matter how difficult it was you know I could make choices about whether or not that truth ever saw the the light of day in terms of other people's eyes um but I knew that the only way that I could could write would be was to be brave and courageous and so I just leaned into that what does being courageous mean for you? Like when you sit down to write and you're like, wow, I really did it this time. What, what would you be describing? Um, 
Well, it depends on, you know, certainly it depends on the poem or it depends on the circumstance, but it is going down beneath the surface to a place where I may not have realized that this is what I'd seen or this is what had happened or this is what I'd felt unless I'd put the pen to the paper long enough to bring that forward. Okay. And, and, and what inspires you to write? Like what, what writers have inspired you and, you know, what keeps you going? <laughs> oh, there's so many out there, you know, and I, I, get, I get little poetry crushes. I think that's what keeps me going is my poetry girl crushes from, <laughs> from, <laughs> from one, one to the other. It's, I mean, I do tend to, um, toward poets who are generally speaking more narrative more storytelling more more you know coming from the well of, of memory and place um, I love Diane Seuss uh, who does that about her you know her, her life in in, uh, in the Midwest in Michigan um, and is a very just wild I think a wild and courageous writer Ada Lamone is, is a long time um, uh, inspiration to me as another writer who uses her own, you know, her own life uh, and her own experience as a way to get to deeper and more universal as well as more intimate and specific truths. Just so many, and I mean, lo, uh, more locally, Maggie Smith, a uh, writer out of the Columbus area, is is a writer that I admire very much for much of the same the same reasons. Um, Rebecca Gale Howell, whom I've mentioned before. So I don't know. I could I could just I could go on and on, but I, I've also gotten more interested too in in um, in doing writing that uses. Um, uses sources, you know, newspaper sources or, or, or language that is not necessarily the language of poetry. And so writers like, um, you know, Claudia Rankin, for example, and Carolyn Wright and Natasha Trethewey, who, you know, sort of really delve into history and current culture and bring that language into their poetry is also very inspiring to me right now. Excellent. Okay. Well, thank you very much for sharing. Would you like to read us a second poem before we wrap up? I would. I would indeed. So this poem is also in Heartbreak Tree. So maybe it's true. Poetry doesn't make you a better person. And the news that can be found there is like some gone week Sunday times tossed in its clear green wrapper beneath the neighbor's car. The one who died and no one came to find him and you didn't knock on his door when his trash can of carry out chicken and ribs set spilling its own kind of news. Maybe, but oh, to live a while as marrow in someone else's bones, to breathe her breath upon the mirror held up to your life. Doesn't it make you want to fling open whatever door you come to? Doesn't it make you want to try? <laughs> I love that poem. All right. 
Thank you so much for sharing. Um, this has been Poetry Spotlight, a production of the Ohio Poetry Association. Please follow the OPA on Twitter at Ohio Poetry and on Facebook at facebook.com slash Ohio Poetry. A transcript of this episode can be found on the OPA blog. Visit ohiopoetryassociation.org for more information. And Pauletta, thank you so very much for coming in. Thank you, Jeremy. I really appreciate it.